The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, commuter connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. 911, what's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're going to make it out of here, we got to work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at 11. She was hired to fix DC's 911 problems. It was the worst I'd ever seen. But instead says she was fired for exposing the failures. The blame belongs in leadership. Now the I-team digs into what fueled the mayor's decision. Tonight on 7 News at 5. There's no place to escape to. This is the last talk. On the left. <laughs> That's when the cannibalism started. What was that? Oh, God. Okay, boys. We're planning the perfect murder. All right. All right, we're planning the perfect murder. Well, we already all. failed because this is recorded. Oh, fuck. <laughs> fuck. Um, no, but if we are going to, I say the perfect murder on someone that no one cares about when they go missing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. But now these days, but honestly, let's leave these poor sex workers alone, right? Great. Because they're great. You know what I mean? Let's leave these children of the rich alone. Sure. Because yeah. they've gone through so much. Absolutely. Not easy. That's right. You know who we need to get? Who? It's the fucking Pillsbury Doughboy. <laughs> I want to not... fucking see what his little guts look like. And guess he's, what, man? He's dough. Yeah, man, but he's alive. I want to see what his little fucking donut guts look like. And because guess what? If we what? fucking kill him and then everyone makes a big, oh, you can't believe he killed the Pillsbury Doughboy, right? We get another fucking dough Geppetto. <laughs> to make another one of them. That's if called a baker. One, yeah, but like if we could get one of them, he can make another one of them, right? You know, I, I always sort of thought of the Pillsbury Doughboy as like kind of a supernatural being, not a biological being in any way whatsoever. Like Cryptid? someone of a, like a ghost, more like a ghost, actual, actually, like huh. a spirit, like some like made of protoplasm. Interesting. That's how I, I always thought of him at least. Interesting, because I always thought of him kind of like as like a golem. Yeah. I thought that he was like a built, constructed, like like a Pinocchio. Yeah. Where he is made by somebody who wanted to fuck something that was young, but he knew <laughs> that if he made it out of dough, he could. Yeah. And then it, there'd be no evidence because you just close up the hole <laughs> by just mushing all the dough back into its old place. I always thought he was just a contrived product to make kids eat Pillsbury dough. What the fuck? I know. Isn't that crazy? Welcome to last podcast on the left, everyone. I am Ben Kissel, hanging out with Henry Zabrowski, Marcus Parks. My voice is gone from this weekend in Nashville, so I apologize if your ears aren't getting your usual suc- succulent tones. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> boink, boink. All right, everyone. Today, we are on to Leopold and Loeb, part three. I know, Kissel, your voice is gone, but I will say, at some point, your catchphrases have to change from various animal noises. I just did an <laughs> oink, oink. Oink, oink. <laughs> you just, that's an animal noise. Yeah. <laughs> 
So when we last left Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, they had not only fully confessed to killing Bobby Franks in great detail, they'd also literally walked the police through the entire day of the murder from buying the weapon to disposing of the body. And while I may have mixed up the names a time or two in the last couple of episodes, because Leopold and Loeb, they're so goddamn similar. You bastard. I know, I know. Please note that the tortoiseshell glasses that put both boys into the clink belong to Nathan Leopold and the bird collection, which we will be discussing at length later, also belonged to Nathan Leopold, the so-called slave to Richard Loeb's king. Basically, every single thing that's ugly and nerdy, Nathan did. Yeah. Richard was the handsome one that was given the plank while the other dude was the one lying down enjoying the plank. All right. But just after Leopold and Loeb confessed to their crimes separately, each blaming the other for the planning of the kidnapping and for the murder itself, the Loeb family finally called a lawyer to, at the very least, make sure the boys didn't hang. It is crazy how much money can go into just like don't give them the noose. Like, yeah. we was, we're going to spend so much money just to, because in the end, like, it's going to cost how much more money? They are going to sit in jail for a very long time. So that it will also cost money. But it is interesting to just see, like, they'll do anything to keep those boys alive. Even though, like, then they'll be in jail. And do you think these rich boys are going to do very well in a well, lifetime they, in jail? What? They actually what? might because they can get the good ramen. We're talking top shelf. Their mm. their uh, canteen card is going to be full. True. But yeah, it's going to be a very, very stressful for their Difficult transition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, as it happened, the lawyer who represented Leopold and Loeb was legendary defense attorney Clarence Darrow. Yeah, man, this fucking guy. He, he looks like shit professional. <laughs> <laughs> he does, man. He looks so bad all the time. Just I think disheveled. It's just, they, he, they invented the word disheveled to describe Clarence Darrow. <laughs> well, his thing, right, because he's kind of like, uh, was, I guess you could compare him to sort of like a Bernie Sanders. Or he, he shoots you straight. Yeah. It's the whole thing is he shoots you straight and that's why he looks like shit all his hair is always uncombed and his fucking shirt's out of his thing and he's covered in stains and shit. He's very expensive. <laughs> well, he sounds like a real John Tester out of Montana in every man's thinking man. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, these days, Darrow is best known as the attorney who unsuccessfully fought for the right to teach evolution in Tennessee during the so-called Scopes Monkey Trial, which was immortalized in the play Inherit the Wind. Henry, oh. do you ever do Inherit the Wind? I, I figured that was something you might have done at one point. I've never done uh, a full version of Inherit the Wind, but I did a monologue as Clarence Darrow from Inherit the Wind <laughs> for class. How did you do? How, what was your Clarence Darrow voice? Yeah, we are. It's not even close. Clarence Darrow sounded like Franklin Roosevelt. If you, if you want to see my full Clarence Darrow performance, and this is not just a plug, but it's it's real. Your preface is going to hell season four. Uh, Gary, uh, is when I, uh, I'm on trial and that really is me. That is me doing my best. I thought it sounded very good, Henry. No, he doesn't have an accent. For some reason, I thought that he was like that. That is called, um, creative license. Cause I did think <laughs> exactly. that he was like, I, cause he does wipe himself a lot. I did take yeah. that, like that sort of idiosyncratic thing from him, wiping the lips, wiping the back of the neck. Cause it's always mm-hmm. too hot for him because he's right. He, he runs hot. Clarence Zero. And so they did that. But I thought he had a Southern accent, but he does not. It's actually fairly like mid-Atlantic. 
But just one year before Darrow defended science in the South in 1925, he defended Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb as the so-called Attorney of the Damned. So named because Darrow was known as an attorney who defended the indefensible as a matter of principle, whether he made money from it or not. Oh, he should have married Aaliyah. She was the queen of the damned and he was the attorney of the damned. (laughs) And isn't it it nice to have one artist and one lawyer? True. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, but that was also back in the day when people like had principles and stood for things and did things because they believed in them or whatever. Because nowadays, if you do get an attorney for the damned, it's just going to be a TikTok woman with pasties on (laughs) and horns right there. And she will have a legal degree and she will work for you. But mostly it's about the aesthetic. Yeah. Well, for example, as far as defending people whether they had money or not, in 1893, Darrow defended a 25-year-old Irishman named Patrick Prendergast. Prendergast had unquestioningly assassinated the five-time mayor of Chicago, Carter Harrison Sr., in a fit of unchecked mental illness. Wow. See, Prendergast had become convinced that if he was not appointed to a civil position in which he could improve Chicago's railroad crossings, then the city would fall into chaos. And Prendergast wrote a multitude of letters to Harrison asserting this false belief. Oh, my God. It's the first ever Internet fan. No! (laughs) He had a total, like, he literally was like, I know how to fix these railroads. We got to turn them into spaghetti. (laughs) I am sick and tired of all of these railroads not being made out of spaghetti and me not being made the czar of spaghetti railroads. Ooh, I love it. Train with meatballs. Train with meatballs coming through. And thankfully, I can legally go purchase this gun. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) Well, when Harrison was reelected to a non-consecutive fifth term in 1893 and Prendergast did not get his appointment... Prendergast talked his way into the mayor's home and fatally shot him three times. Hey, just be a friendly Irish chimney sweep. Uh, yes. <laughs> like, okay. like they just we- let anybody in back in the day. They just like, hey, hey, <laughs> oh, you got to let me inside. What were you here for again, sir? Hey, you got to clean your holes. You got to <laughs> clean the, we don't even have a chimney, though. Yeah, let me inside for just a second because <laughs> you can see I'm going to melt in the rain. No problem. <laughs> and the worst part was that he shot him while, while the mayor was taking a nap. That seems oh, like the worst on. time to die. At least he didn't know. Uh, well, I'm sure he woke up before he died. Do you? If you, Unless you get shot in the head. That's how I would do it. I put yeah. the gun right up to your sleeping head and blow your brains out that way so that you die dreaming. But that's oh. just because I'm a nice guy. <laughs> I'm a nice guy nice. and I'm just, yeah, I'm a neighborhood yeah. guy. Now, Darrow argued that Prendergast was insane and should therefore at least be spared the hangman's rope. But the jury disagreed and Prendergast was hanged for murder, which haunted Darrow for years afterward. See, Darrow was an early and vocal opponent of the death penalty in America, rightfully referring to it as state-sanctioned murder, a barbaric relic that had no place in modern society. Now, Mr. Parks, I'm actually going to be able to use my weird voice here for a little character work named Priscilla. I'm a hang woman or a hang bitch, whatever you want to call me. hang bitch. Either way, I don't appreciate you saying hang man. I've killed more fucking men than most people could ever even imagine. So fuck you. 
And I'm going to go masturbate thinking about other large women. Thank you so much for bringing the Hangvich community to the table. No problem. Because um, this has really been such a, because again, we're so we're inclusive here and we want Always. all of you to be seated here at our conicopia. My facts. name is Priscilla Marlboro Winston. <laughs> mm. Oh, good. 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 Yes. Not related or related? Uh, addicted. Addicted. Oh, oh, okay. Well, partly, Darrow's belief came from the absolute fact that innocent people are executed far more often than death penalty advocates would like to admit. We know mm. that to this day. Oh, yes. But mostly, Darrow's deeply held principles were inspired by a surprisingly progressive yet ridiculously titled book written in 1886 called our penal machinery and its victims. <laughs> yeah, my poor, beautiful wife has to deal with my penal machinery three times a week. Wow, yeah, three whole really times a week. It's good. Oh, wow, oh, yeah, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> penal machinery. I love that band. Great, great tunes. See, the author of that book, John Altgeld, former governor of Illinois, had found through extensive research that criminal behavior was less of a conscious choice made freely than a matter of upbringing, education, and environment. Based on his studies, Altgeld found that the overwhelming majority of incarcerated criminals had grown up in poverty. They were raised in families where one or both parents were absent, and they were without the benefits of education, schooling, or discipline. Bereft of any other options, many of these men had turned to crime to survive. Now, for most of yes. us, we all hear this and we say, no fucking shit. No right. shit. You're like, yeah. exactly. Yeah, this is the problem. This is the thing that we were dealing with. This is why there's a classist problem in america that does fuck with people's lives yeah all i heard you say marcus was honey comes for dinner sweet. <laughs> <laughs> well we hear that today and we say no shit you know many people know this as fact we know that this is just the way shit works but in the late 19th century this was revolutionary stuff nobody had ever talked about this type of thing before and this was especially because cities and society as a whole were both evolving into the modern world that we all live in today People were moving from farmlands into the cities more and more often. They were becoming major hubs of humanity. And they just kept happened to start to find out, hey, we might have to figure out how to deal with all of these people. Right. Like they're humans and not like they're just a bunch of like cogs in a machine. Now, they, they definitely went to the extreme. Like Clarence Darrow believed truly that. Nobody made the choice to be a criminal like he fully believed that where now we know that that's very we'll get into it. But we now yeah. know that that's very varied. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's not get too far. Now, Clarence Darrow was a fountain of compassion if ever there was one. And he put the beliefs inspired by Altgeld's book into practice, defending everyone from the poorest sex worker to the richest corrupt politician. And he defended Plenty of murderers in between. Yes. That must have been a fun day for the politician. He's like, hey, Barbara, you're here, too. Same lawyer, huh? Awesome. Yeah, right. <laughs> we nice. also, man, at the same time as like, how does it happen? Because you remember Johnny Cochran back in the day? Yeah. Like those, those style of lawyers were like, don't you realize like how much deep shit you're in? If they're your lawyer, yeah. we're like, that's the thing is that by the time you get the best lawyer in the world, it's because you are extremely guilty of massive crimes. Well, not necessarily no, innocent no. until proven guilty. You're right. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, Henry, what you said earlier about like Darrow's belief and like it's a little bit more complicated and a little bit more nuanced than that. It's not necessarily that they had no free will. He believed that free will, as we think of it, is somewhat of an illusion. It's not it's not necessarily that we have some sort of ordained path. We don't or that we have a faith that we can't escape for what he believed is that our upbringing and our life experiences almost make our decisions for us, not in that we don't have any free will or we have no choice or anything like that. It's just that wh- how we see the world is the, you know, that's kind of the sphere in which we take all of our opinions. We take our decision making processes and people that grow up in a world where there's not a lot of choices. The idea that sure. we can make any choice at all, the complete and total free will, that doesn't occur to us because we don't have complete and total free will. And now his great, great, great grandson is in Union Square screaming about how we all live in a simulation. And I just want to say this sometimes <laughs> if we do live in a simulation, hit pause on some of your characters and mute. Come on, let him mute. rest. Hit let fast rest. forward. Hit fast Please. forward. Uh, also, though, it's kind of interesting because you have little shit face, rat fuck, right? Super into Freddy Nachos. Interesting that he's falling onto the belief systems of Clarence Darrow to save him from the hangman's noose when Freddy Nachos would say, as a matter of fact, all we have is our individual will and yeah. the need to rise to power. And actually, you must take control of your own life and change change yourself no matter what your circumstances are. So it's interesting about what they'll do when it uh, the time comes for the court man to come a ringing. I'm going to Nietzsche a little drink after that. You still got it. And here's the other thing, too, is that, you know, it may sound like Darrow believes that all responsibility should be removed from every criminal act. And that absolutely was not the case. All Darrow was talking about is that you don't deserve to die for it. You don't deserve to die for your crimes. No that matter- motherfucker was trying to serve as a stopgap during a very cruel time period. Yeah. So whatever it was, his viewpoint, like, yeah, it might be a little bit to the other side, far to the other end of the spectrum, but somebody had to fucking be there. And yeah. I think that what is what, and that's what he would use all of his various, which I don't do people do that anymore, where you can go into a courtroom and he used it as his like philosopher's chair where he would explain and break things down for days at a time. Does it work? like that anymore i don't think so if they are if it if they are there is people doing that we're not fucking paying attention to them yeah they're just some kind of nerd doing policy and changing the world or fucking some (laughs) shit call me when i can see your dick on the internet please (laughs) yeah i I mean that's essentially what uh darrow is trying to say it's another version of not your fault but it is your responsibility you know it's not your fault you know it is your responsibility that you committed that crime but it's not your fault and therefore you know we shouldn't be uh putting you in front of the fire, firing squad for it. Now, this view, of course, takes a fair amount of sympathy and compassion for your fellow man. But if you're inclined towards this view, then you're also probably more inclined to feel more sympathy for someone who grew up in poverty than for, say, the sons of multimillionaires, people like Leopold and Loeb. Yeah, so what we talked about it at the very beginning of the series, which is like, why would these two people who seemingly had everything at their fingertips, the entire world, why would they do this mm-hmm. just to fuck up a bunch of people's lives? Right. But to Clarence Darrow's great credit, he did not cherry pick his beliefs in any way whatsoever. He reasoned that when it came to negative influences that shaped behavior, it didn't matter if you grew up poor or if you grew up 
rich, while it was much more likely that poverty would produce the external stimuli that created criminal behavior, certain circumstances in wealthy families could create monsters of an entirely different stripe. Namely, Darrow believed that it was these circumstances that created Leopold and Loeb. Now, on the other side of the courtroom in the Leopold and Loeb murder trial was the aforementioned state's attorney, Robert Crow. Crow believed that Darrow's sociological arguments were total horseshit. <laughs> yeah, Crow, Crow's this old-fashioned son of a fucking bitch, man. Yeah. Crow was described as unscrupulous, cynical, cunning, and devious, concerned mostly with the accumulation of power through the arrest, incarceration, and, if warranted, execution of Chicago's criminals. I mean, they were actively in a war street war. Yeah. Against gangs. So, like, oh, yeah. that's also the difference, too, is that while all of this is happening, like, this, I think we set the tone last week, but like, while this is this whole scenario is playing out, this celebrity trial, it's like Chicago, the city's eating itself. Whoa. <laughs> like, all the things falling apart. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, Crow is not able to convict or even arrest any of those guys that are committing those gangland murders. So he's using the Leopold and Loeb trial as a shiny little toy saying, look over here, look over here. Here, look over here. Yeah. And he's pushing for the death penalty for all of the wrong reasons. See, Crow's sights were set squarely on the mayor's office, and Crow believed that people had the free will to choose criminal behavior the way the rest of us would choose where to eat lunch. Simple as that. Hmm. Well, it's not that simple. I mean, we've gotten into massive fights over where to eat. That's mm. honestly mostly our fights are about lunch. Yeah. yeah. Now, while Crow and Darrow were preparing to battle it out in court, Leopold and Loeb still seemed as if they hadn't fully grasped the weight of their own situation just yet and continued to approach life from behind bars as a couple of gadabouts. They're very Menendez Brothers style, just fucking loving every minute of it. Wow. Just loving it. In a letter to his parents, Richard Loeb wrote of how he had made captain of the seventh floor prison ball team. Now, what ball, what shape ball, like, this is the thing. It baseball, just says, this is baseball. Okay, okay. Baseball. Because yeah. a ball team, there's many balls. Yeah. Loeb wrote that his cellmate, uh, by the way, and Loeb described his cellmate as his roommate. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. He described him as a nice chap, even though he only had a high school education. I still, still a fucking snob. That fucking <laughs> piece of shit. He sounds like Jody Arias, kind of. A little bit, yeah. And Richard Loeb wrote about how the jail authorities had been, quote, awfully nice, although Clarence Darrow had very wisely advised Loeb to not ask anyone for any special privileges while he was behind bars. But along with those updates, Loeb also showed a sort of sociopath's contrition in which he pretended to be absolutely bewildered as to how any of this could have happened. This is what he wrote in a letter to his parents. And by the way, Henry, I'd, I'd like you to read this verbatim. If oh, yes, could. yes, yes, yes. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah, there's not <laughs> much so room. everyone knows. Yeah. Truly, there's not much room for improv in this. Of course, dear Mumpsby. I don't even know how to pronounce Mumpsy. 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 Mumpsy and Popsy. Of course, dear Mumpsy and Popsy. This thing's all too terrible. I've thought and thought about it, and even now I do not seem to be able to understand it. I... I just cannot seem to figure out how it all came about. One thing I am certain, though, is that I have no one to blame but myself. I am afraid that you two may try and put the blame upon your own shoulders, and, and I know that I am alone to blame. I never was frank with you, 
Mumps be. Popsy dear. <laughs> <laughs> and had you suspected anything and came and talked to me, I would undoubtedly have denied everything and, and just gone on just the same. You know, the nice thing is his parents must have read that letter and felt like they did a pretty good job. You know, this is a, <laughs> I love being called Mumpsy. Mumpsy. <laughs> I my love favorite. Mumpsy. Yeah, it definitely sounds like the female Igor. <laughs> and you, that's allowed. Uh, but I actually, I read an account of him as a, young, as a younger man that they try to put forth during the trial of like why they felt that Richard might be nicer than they thought that, that, yeah. you know, like all this. And it was all about how he had gotten into a car accident with a girl that he was in school with and she got severely injured. And they talked about how when he found out that she got severely injured, this is what they said made him a good guy is that he threw up and fainted uh, in the hospital room. And everyone's like, oh, it's because of the care that he felt over the woman. And I was like, no, dude, he thought he was going to jail. <laughs> like, Maybe. that's what was happening. Like, well, yeah. he is, did not. I don't think the man had a single thought for another human being inside of his body. Well, technically, he is nicer than Ted Kennedy. You're right. You're so right. That's he good. just kept driving. He just well, no, he just kept on running away. I must have been a squirrel. <laughs> must have been some kind of woman-shaped squirrel. Well, it's also the performative nature of the sociopath, because the sociopath only does an action if it benefits him, him or her in some way or another. So it could be that, you know, Richard saw that there was an advantage to him crying and throwing up and passing out uh, at the hospital. Who knows yes. what the fuck that was? But oh, yeah. it's certainly not proof that he's a good person. Well, it's not easy to just randomly throw up. He's not draws from the WWE back in the 90s who did end up in a wheelchair, ironically enough. But it's not easy to just puke <laughs> when you're thinking about. Wait, puking. How is, wait, how is that ironic? How is it ironic? Yeah, how is because that ironic? He, because he threw up when the girl was in a wheelchair after the car accident. Oh, oh, that's a, he, oh, that's oh I that's thought it's it, coincidental. That's a coincidence. Okay, fucking Atlantis. <laughs> I just thought his character was somebody who would never, ever, 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 ever throw up because he doesn't yeah. biologically have a throat. Or somebody who, like, every time he threw up, he ended up in a wheelchair. Like, he threw up so much that he had to use a wheelchair. Like, that would be closer to irony. You know, man, do you ever had 10,000 spoons and all you need is a knife? <laughs> I'll fucking suck your cock in a movie theater right now. <laughs> but as Richard was trying to rope his parents into a sympathy trap, the police were hard at work trying to pen as many unsolved murders as they could on Leopold and Loeb, reasoning that if they committed one murder for the thrill of it, they might have committed several more crimes for the same reason. Yeah. The first crime police tried linking to Leopold and Loeb was the brutal assault of a cab driver named Charles Ream. Oh, man. Were you ever seen? Uh, man, Charles Ream is incredible and in where the girls have never, ever been. Have you ever seen that film? No. It's a documentary film. I'm talking about where the girls have never ever. Oh, Charlie girls, Ream. Charlie it's about Ream. Reaming, Charlie it's about Ream. Rim Charlie jumps. Ream. Yeah, mm, rim like jump, yeah, with the reaming. Sure. At, See, you buttholes. Come, you just, I just need to be understood <laughs> and listened to. I need to be heard and made room for. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, Ream said that in November of 1923, six months before the murder of Bobby Franks, a man held him at gunpoint while another man knocked him out with an ether-soaked rag. When Reem woke up hours later near a set of railroad tracks, he was bruised, bloody, and worst of all, castrated. That is worst Whoa, of all. Whoa, that yes. is the worst. Yeah, yeah. yeah. especially just because, like, man, 
That's a rough Tuesday. That's a real hmm. rough Tuesday. Rougher than 9-11, I think, for him. You know, <laughs> for for, him. Like, roughest Tuesday he'd have seen that year. If, if it happened in the same year, you know, he'd be uh-huh. like, ah, oh, I sure wish I didn't wake up next to that railroad my balls cut off. But yeah. 9-11 is pretty bad. You're right. Well, he doesn't know about that yet. But then Henry's idea of the spaghetti track probably wasn't real either, so he didn't even have a spaghetti. <laughs> no. No. Because then he could have made a little spaghetti dick. <laughs> And he still would have been sad and penisless. Yeah. And uh, he would have a bunch of spaghetti in his pants and people would try to ignore him and, and try not to acknowledge him as he as he cried and, yeah. and he was covered in sauce. And yeah. you just have to sort of go like, sir, like, do you, or, do you want beans with that? Or like, do you want rice and beans? Or, and yeah, and now he's Charlie spaghetti pants. For the rest of yeah. his life. Yeah. And then he just hugs everyone really too aggressively. And he's like, I'm a tell you. Uh, it's wet. I'm wet. <laughs> well, concerning Leopold and Loeb, Reem had woken up about a mile from the drainage pipe where the corpse of Bobby Franks had been dumped. Interesting, but not definitive. No. Then there was the killing of a 23-year-old University of Chicago student named Freeman Tracy. Tracy had disappeared from the streets of Chicago within weeks of the attack on Reem's, and Tracy's body was found with a single gunshot to the head. The gun used to kill Freeman Tracy was the same kind of revolver, Owned by Nathan Leopold. Again, okay. interesting, but not definitive. It just seems Chicago's a pretty violent place. Yeah. Right. You also had Louise Holy, who was kidnapped, raped, and let go on the outskirts of Chicago just three months before Bobby Franks was killed. And finally, you had Melvin Wolf, who was last seen near the Harvard School for Boys, where Bobby Franks was kidnapped and was soon after found decomposing in Lake Michigan. Now, there were tenuous links to Leopold and Loeb from these crimes. Both Charles Ream and Louise Holy said that Leopold and Loeb were their attackers. But of course, that was only after Leopold and Loeb became extremely famous. But when we look at the human element here, none of these crimes match Leopold and Loeb's psychology or personality because Leopold and Loeb were fucking cowards. They chose a child to kidnap because a child was less likely to successfully fight back. And all of the victims in these other crimes were full-grown adults. Yes, they were amateurs and shitheads and did not want, they they didn't want any problems and they wanted it to be over quickly and they knew if they preyed on someone extremely vulnerable that it would be much easier for them to do the quote-unquote perfect crime. Mm. Mm. Well, even though the links were tenuous, these four crimes would later be used by the prosecution as a key component of Leopold and Loeb's relationship. Crow would argue that Nathan used these crimes to blackmail Richard into a sexual relationship, and as a result, Loeb had even thought about killing Leopold to get out from under the proverbial sword hanging above his head. Or at least that's what Loeb claimed, and Loeb did his best to bolster this claim. Hmm. In an interview with a psychiatrist, Loeb claimed that he'd been afraid of Leopold, which of course made Loeb the real victim here. Sure. And it made Nathan even more of a villain because even the prosecution was trying throughout to make Nathan Leopold the main villain of this case. He was definitely, they made him out to be the mastermind of the pair. I kind of want to put a little bit on his face. Yeah. He's the evil looking one. He's the evil looking one. And he's an asshole. And he's an asshole. Like, if that's the problem is that if you don't, I went deep into Freddie Nacho's territory and this whole thing trying to understand a little bit more. And truly, he completely misunderstood, specifically, he purposefully misunderstood yes. what he was reading well, to use apply it as a justification. It to life. Yeah, to apply it to his life. But what's interesting is when I was reading is that the, the various people in, 
talking to the investigators, right? Like the various people that Clarence Darrow hired to talk to all of them, psychotherapists, the scientists, they all actually kind of believed Nathan because they felt that he was a straight shooter. Like he yeah. was saying all of this stuff out loud. Like the one thing was interesting. He blamed his homosexual on just being so horny. His dick had to go anywhere. Um, which is interesting because, you know, that was also he's just making like he's it was hard to come out of the time yeah. Uh, and yeah, and, and talk about it openly. But yes, he said that he was just so horny that Richard would kind of alleviate of him of his symptoms is basically what he said. But in the end, yeah. Oh, yeah. The old fashioned way, Marcus. I see. I see that <laughs> wink in your eye. Uh, yeah, it's a wink. It's like, yeah, alleviate his symptoms, which is just balls full of cum. Oh, my yep. balls. His, my balls are full of cum and I need to go to the doctor and get my treatment. I must get my devil's. I call it the devils. The devils have to come out of my balls <laughs> for me to focus on the day. Like yeah, I have okay. to move forward. Um, yeah, but, come yeah, come they, over and see me. I'm, uh, my name is Doctor Teeth. Oh no, it's Priscilla. <laughs> oh no, it's the hang bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll hang you. <laughs> but even though these crimes were mentioned at trial, neither Leopold nor Loeb were charged with any of them. Now, when it came to media attention for this trial, it wasn't just the American press that went all in. Reporters came from as far away as Australia to cover the proceedings. And because of the worldwide interest, it was proposed that the trial be broadcast in its entirety on the radio. Now, private radio ownership was still in early days in 1924. Not too many people had them. But Chicago had already heard enough about Leopold and Loeb's relationship to know that there was most likely going to be a heavily sexual slant to the proceedings. We're going to say the words bummery. We're going to say the word back scutlery. We're going to say making ye old icing on the... I don't know. I don't fucking know what we're going to say. But it is interesting. On the cinnamon buns. You're right. And there was also a rumor that Leopold and Loeb had sexually abused the corpse, which would, of course, be mentioned at trial. Therefore, if it was broadcast on public airways, it would be possible that children would have heard all about the middle finger we mentioned last episode. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, yeah. And that's that's not how you want them to hear about it. No. You want to be able to sit your family down at home and explain to them one on one, mother and father to child about how many fingers can go up the the butthole of a dead body. (laughs) Every family has to have that conversation. Yes. And I remember when I had it. It was was five. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But what really put the kibosh on the whole idea was more the fact that in those days, the general public had no real idea of how a trial was conducted. And specifically, they had no idea how attorneys conducted themselves during trial. See, the exchange between defense and prosecution was not as dignified as people imagined it to be in those days. And a superior court judge believed that if the public actually heard just how vulgar an American courtroom could be, they'd have an even greater contempt for the law than what they had after prohibition had been introduced. Uh, Judge Big Tits would like to come up to the fucking <laughs> bench for a fucking second. Hey, you want to f- hey, you listen to me? You want to smell my farts? You dumb good cunt looking baby dick fuck ass and it's like and they all the stenographer just just like very dutifully writing it down i didn't know either well i mean vulgar in the way that they would insult each other like remember there were days in the senate like when men would beat each other with sticks of course you know that's pre-civil war days and things were pretty heated then i want them to fight openly again that is the only way i view them as remotely honest is if they're all like, fun. I like that in Parliament where they're all yelling and throwing cups at each other and shit. 
It's it's nice. But therefore, the trial was not broadcast and the public had to make do with daily reports from the dozens of newspapers that cover the proceedings day after day. Now, in the beginning, Clarence Darrow had a vague plan of pleading not guilty, possibly by reason of insanity, because it was the only option left after Leopold and Loeb had confessed to everything so thoroughly. So to determine if this was indeed a viable option, Darrow brought in a slew of medical, scientific and psychological experts to examine Leopold and Loeb from head to toe, inside and out. Oh, oh yeah, man. They did <laughs> oh, the, whole, the, the whole telescope. Mm-hmm. They got you go there. They, they, it's amazing. The scientific experts studied the boy's endocrine system, endo- endocrine? Endocrine. 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 endocrine, endocrine, endocrine system, including their thyroid glands, their pineal glands, their adrenal glands, mm. and their thymus glands, mm. all to see if an imbalance might have contributed to Leopold and Loeb's behavior. Glands. The glands mm. always hold the hands. That's what they say. <laughs> After the glands were examined and the results were found to be interesting but inconclusive. There's glands here. (laughs) There are. Did you have any clue how many glands are? Honestly, I didn't know we had like nine of them. Yeah. Well, it was interesting in that, you know, like Leopold had weird glands, but Loeb did not have weird glands. That so. doesn't even mean anything. <laughs> are, Holden, are Holden's bumps glands? No. No, those are cysts. They're not oh. supposed to be there. A gland yeah. oh. started, a gland was a part of the package when you came out the vagina. What Holden has are accessories as some part of, I guess, some Excelsior plan his parents signed up for when he was born. <laughs> Hmm, interesting. Rise from your grave. A roast as dark as the night, perfect for fueling the cryptid research and mad ravings required for your podcasting. Don't mind the red eyes. He's just trying to warn you of the bridge. The bridge. Finally, from the caffeine-addled brains of Spring Hill Jack Coffee and last podcast on the left, we bring you Mothman's Red Eye Blend. Yes, delicious Panama beans. Go to lastpodcastmerch.com to order yours today. <laughs> Last Podcast on the Left is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Thanks, Squarespace! With Squarespace, it's easy to create a beautiful website all on your own terms. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. This ain't your mama's website platform. It is, actually. It's actually be very easy for your mother to learn. You don't want to miss Fluid Engine. It's a next-generation website design system from Squarespace with reimagined drag-and-drop technology for desktop or mobile. I thought it was just the name of what my blood pressure medication turned me into. Um, I'm peeing. Now, my goals for the year are I have two warehouses filled with horse picks. Now, I know a lot of people, uh, obviously this bit has been done, but the Zendaya centaur picks are not going anywhere. And I've been trying to get the Judge Reinhold sitting on the Clydesdale line out. Uh, I need these moved, okay? Because I have to move into the storage unit. Let's just say there are problems at home. So I need Squarespace to shoot this through the roof for me this year. And that's why I'm going to go full tilt. And not only are you going to get the Judge Reinhold sitting on the Clydesdale entire series, clothes and non-clothes, what we also are going to offer, and I mean this, 
We're trying to get into giraffe rides. I brought this up the other day. We got to start riding other animals but horses. Take pictures of the horses. Photoshop the horses into other celebrities, but stop riding them. Save a horse. Ride a giraffe with Squarespace. Go head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace.com. Hey, have you heard the Virginia Lottery has a new Willy Wonka golden ticket scratcher that has a top prize of $100,000? Tell that to my automated golden ticket scratcher apparatus. You simply put the ticket in here and the machine scratches it for you. And while we wait, we can play the Willy Wonka Golden Ticket online game with a top prize of $1 million. Just visit VALottery.com or use the lottery app. That's one impressive scratcher apparatus. Use it whenever. What's mine is yours. But hands off the scratcher. That Willy Wonka Golden Ticket is all mine. Sofas, recliners, love seats. Everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute. Who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Well, after the glands were examined mm. and the results were found to be interesting but inconclusive. You wouldn't even believe there's like nine of them in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't you know, I'm not only just a hang bitch, I'm also a gland bitch. Yeah. And I've actually, I've licked every one of their glands, and I'll tell you one thing, not guilty. Yeah, she's just that hang bitch. Is the, the, <laughs> that is, is the, the wisest woman I've ever met. Yes, yes. Thank you for calling me a woman, by the way. Most people call me much more derogatory terms. Thank you. <laughs> well, Nathan, Nathan's glands were found, they were like, well, Nathan's glands are like fucking weird, bro, That's but like Loeb's glands are, are normal, so... They couldn't use any of that. They couldn't use glands in the argument. But after they examined the glands, an x-ray machine was brought inside the Cook County Jail to examine Richard and Nathan's bone structure. <laughs> and interestingly, Nathan's skull did show an abnormality. At the age of 19, Nathan had a hardening of the cartilage that typically occurred in people between the ages of 30 and 45. And his pineal gland, which... As far as its function goes, still a fucking mystery. We still don't really we know. We still what the don't really does. know. Isn't that yeah. wild that yeah. we still don't know what the fuck it does? Yeah, but it was found that Nathan's was prematurely hardened and calcified. Interestingly, the pineal gland is believed by some to be the so-called third eye that is the gateway to higher consciousness or mm. the gateway to the collective unconsciousness, oh. which might go some way towards explaining why Nathan Leopold was such a massive asshole. Yeah, I, he might. That might have something to do with it. It might just be he's a fucking asshole. Yeah. But I did. Um, I looked up. Uh, I got really into phrenology. Mm -hmm. For some right. reason on this yeah. episode, because I do find it interesting because it's the dumbest shit. Yes. For on the face of the planet. Those of you who don't know, phrenology is the study of the shape of the skull that's supposed to give all sorts of insights. Everything from behavioral shit to what you're supposed to be doing for a living. With your life and shit yeah. like that. Because the uh. goal was is that it's a definitely like a precursor to eugenics. Yes. Like the idea that, they, that we are just like again machine creatures that we're not like humans with autonomy that we just like walk around like robots and the phrenology they, they believe that the brain looked like a raspberry huh. it was a bunch of little chunks 
right? <laughs> and that each one could be inflamed. And they sometimes put a hat on you with pins on it. They're like, it was the dumbest shit. But I was reading Nathan Leopold's phrenology chart. Uh-huh. And it is interesting what they say is that um, apparently what they 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 blame his um, being homosexual on his nose. They say his, <laughs> his nose, nose means he's gay. His nose means he is a feminine nature, quote unquote, and that he's gay. And that the problem is also they then also blame the bump on the very back of his head, the back ridge, uh-huh. as um, c- contributing to his great love of sex. And he also said his sensuous lips, they had problems with it. Honestly, it's not he like does, he does. He does have sensuous lips. I'll say he that. Does. They're he quite does. full. But they are, it's a horny reading. Yeah. <laughs> because he, they really, they talk about his excessive vanity and the back half of his head. They have a flat part. They said that that's a part of his homicidal inclinations. Huh. What do you know? Yeah, weird. Well, no, mine's not flat. The back of my head is a little indentation back there. And I do have a yeah, bump, I, though, but everyone's Everyone got has bump. the bump. Everybody yeah. likes sex. Not everybody. Not everybody. Not everybody. There are not everybody. Out there. No, not I everybody. Know, I not know. everybody, Henry. I know, not everybody. I know. Not everybody, Henry. I know. I know. Well, what did. When they haven't tried my brand new non human dick sucking machine. And I will turn every asexual into an absolutely depraved pervert. By the end of this quarter. Isn't that nice? The jello machine. <laughs> what did reveal quite a bit about Leopold and Loeb, however, was the psychological examinations of both young men. Richard told psychiatrists that he'd always wanted to be famous and had imagined himself in roles ranging from admired athlete to adventurous explorer. But as we know, Richard chose master criminal. Because it's much easier than either one of the things that he just said. He yes, just right. wanted to be anybody who just wants blanketly to be famous is uh, needs to be locked up. I really do think that if you if that's what you want, like if you yeah. come out as a kid and that's the only thing that you say that you want, you should like be put in a square for like a year to like think about it. Like really think about it. That's what the Quakers did. No, we put them on. It's a, that's Battle Royale time, man. You put yeah. all those fucking people, you put them on an island, then they get to be famous, then they get to fight for who gets to be famous. That's awesome! Yeah, and we get rid of all of them at the same time. We don't have that's to fucking awesome. deal with any of them. And we never let them off the island. That's never. the thing, man, is that the last person who fucking survives, they're just Stays the first. They're alone. They're the fir- no, they don't say they're alone. They're the next group. Yeah, they're the first one in the next fucking yeah. group, man. Yeah. Well, that's not really <laughs> they get a reward. New weapons. No, they should be able to get like a fucking, they should get a bump stock. Oh, no, they get upgrades. It's a pretty much a roguelike, you know? Yeah, like, they should awesome. get upgrades in a loot box, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nathan, meanwhile, focused on his own intellectual brilliance during his psychological examination. He bragged that he'd learned a dead language from Italy called hmm. Umbrian, specifically because it emphasized his status as an individual that existed above the common rabble. The best part of learning a language that doesn't exist is that I don't get to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. Oh, very nice. <laughs> Can't even physically make a friend if I wanted to. Can I do that on <laughs> Nathan Leopold admitted that he had no regard for anyone and lived solely for his own advantage. Drawing upon his wildly misunderstood Nietzschean beliefs, he claimed to be above the law and above morality, and therefore he had no obligations to society. You know, Freddie Nacho said that because God was dead, he actually was very sad. Because what it what God served was a distractionary point for everybody to try to not deal with the pain of being alive. And now that God is dead, they, we 
don't have anything to distract us from the the never-ending cycle of our eternal recurrence. Oh, you don't think yeah. there's any distractions out there? Yeah. He was incorrect. Freddie Nachos was like fucking yeah. literally what's his name from the Secret Garden. He was like the the he's more like Edward Scissorhands than he is like <laughs> Eddie Eddie like Goring. You know well, what I mean? I was thinking yeah. Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. So, so Freddie Nudge, so basically like the whole opiate of the masses thing is that what he was saying is like, he wasn't saying it condescendingly. He would saying it would be nice. He, he laments that we need it, that we do need it. And he wished that it wasn't necessary for us to live quote unquote happy life. And the goal is to abandon that and any other illusory thing that will distract from like wanting to better yourself. He also was definitely against having any sort of fun. He was against alcohol. He thought that that was the same as religion because what that did was make you, because he said when you drink, all your problems go away, but they're still there and you're not mm. dealing with them. Interesting. Yeah, but I mean, isn't, he's a that, nerd. He's a fucking isn't that amazing nerd. though? But but then they do go away, don't they? It's the thing they do go away. <laughs> yeah, it does work. But no, and so yeah, he's just you know he's very sickly and he was very upset. But he was always thankful for his sickness because he said it allowed him the pain that he lived with allowed him constant opportunities to change. Interesting. <laughs> yep, it's sad. It's a fucked up, dumb. It's a horrible life he loved. Yeah, <laughs> sounds it was like horrible. it. Well, as far as the murder of Bobby Franks went, Nathan said that his only regret was that they had failed. In fact, he said that he was not as disappointed with getting caught as he was with missing out on the feeling that getting away with it would have given him. Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> right. Makes sense. Well, as far as fantasies went, though, both Nathan and Richards were, in a word, confusing. Hmm. And we already covered Loeb's fantasies of being whipped by male prison guards while women looked on. But Leopold's fantasies also involved both a woman and spectators. They just loved the crowd. These guys really just needed to be, uh, if only they could have been comedians. <laughs> and that's the other thing, too, is that Nathan's fantasies, much darker. Oh, than yeah. uh, than Richard's fantasies because oh, Richard's yeah. fantasies are masochistic; they're all inward. Nathan's fantasies, he imagined himself as a German officer in World War One, raping a woman on a table while his soldiers looked on, and and he imagined himself watching his soldiers do the same while he directed their actions. And additionally, Nathan and Richard often engaged in a fair amount of rape role play when they had sex together, where Richard would pretend to be drunk and Nathan would pretend to take rough advantage. You ever you ever look at your boyfriend and just say, what you thinking about? Yeah. I, wonder, <laughs> I wonder what he's thinking about. Literally for me, I am the meme where it is shoes, but I hope it's not ever this. Yeah. I don't want it to be this. But you know, you know what it all sounds like? It's these silly little rich boy men, these the little boys, because they really are mentally like little fucking shithead boys. Mm -hmm. And it's about the fact that they... Um, they resent their big, powerful daddies. And yeah. daddies tell them all what to do. And they, they can't wait to be big, strong men. And they're going to they're gonna be bad. And everyone's <laughs> going to be like, ooh, you're bad and mean. You're in charge of me. And, he, and you know, well, mostly they, I mean, unfortunately, they were going to just walk into being lords of men. They mm -hmm. were just about to just walk into these various massive industries and have total control over many people's lives. And then they but they didn't want that. They wanted something even they wanted this garbage. Now, after examining both young men, it was surmised that neither of them had ever emotionally developed past childhood. Richard had never progressed past the childish desire to solely gain pleasure and avoid pain, while Nathan had never learned to adjust his own desires to account for the needs of others. However, it was found that while Leopold and Loeb were 
basically clinical dickheads, no psychiatrist found them insane in the legal sense. And when Clarence Darrow knew that there was no way out because of the confessions, he changed his tactics. And this is crazy, man. When he did change streams, it fucking rocked the world in a way. Like, people couldn't believe that he was doing this. Yeah. Darrow had Leopold and Loeb change their plea to guilty, if only because at this point, the best they could hope for was avoiding the gallows. And by doing this, Darrow avoided a trial by jury, which meant that the only thing between Leopold and Loeb and an executioner was the judge who decided the punishment for the crime. Don't worry, I have a picture of him in pennies that'll <laughs> seal this whole thing up. Nice. So to avoid the rope, Darrow used the arguments put forth in our penal machinery and its victims and flipped them, saying that Leopold and Loeb's upbringing and the subsequent ways it fucked them up were mitigating factors and adjudicating punishment. Yeah. And so the trial to decide Leopold and Loeb's fate began with state's attorney Robert Crow presenting 14 witnesses on the first day, including Bobby's father, Jacob, the coroner who examined the body, the pharmacist, the hardware clerk, and the manager of the car rental company, who, of course, knew Richard as Mort Ballard. I still say I, I didn't meet Richard that day. I met Mort. And Mort was a good man. And we had a nice, long conversation about the sequel to Game of Thrones. And I love Mort. I don't know who Richard is. You can always trust a Mort. Darrow, meanwhile, didn't cross-examine any of the prosecution's witnesses. And Leopold and Loeb, perhaps playing into Darrow's argument that they were, to put it crudely, all fucked up. Yeah. They, they laughed and snickered through the whole thing. That was the thing. It was the two of them. It really... It's, it, Nothing changes. Nothing changes. You put a camera on these guys. They're the same as true crime people we see now, like playing to the court, playing yeah. to the playing to the audience, laughing as if this was such a waste of their fucking time. Like there's just and it's because their life is on the line, which really kind of shows like in terms of the, the term clinical dickhead, they are that they have a block in understanding the stakes that are that are around them. And what's exciting is the attention that they're getting. They do not care that they are about to probably be executed for murder. Yeah. Now, this lack of cross-examination wasn't surprising considering how none of Darrow's defense rested on arguing against physical evidence or eyewitness testimony. Darrow's entire case was based on psychological factors, but he had to convince the judge that this was a reasonable argument to make in a court of law. So when it was his turn to present, Darrow began by comparing Leopold and Loeb's case to that of a murderer who had almost been sent to the gallows by none other than Robert Crowe. Why are you doing this to me, Clarence? <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? I'm done with this crime. The murderer in question was a syphilitic gangland enforcer named Eugene Geary, who'd shot and killed a man named Harry Reckus on the orders of a Southside whiskey bootlegger named Rex Bain. That's a cool name. Oh, yeah. All these are great fucking prohibition names. You know, what's weird is that we actually just covered on side stories the story of this guy, the guy's known as the Hawaiian master of disguise, who one of his uh, recent fake names was Aaron Bain. Bain's mm. a good name. Bane's a cool name. Now, Geary had pled not guilty by reason of insanity owing to the fact that he was an alcoholic. But more importantly, he had also been suffering from syphilis for 19 years. 
Amongst other mental defects, Gary said that he saw flies and bugs in everything he ate. Mm. He never let anyone turn off any lights when he was around. And he sincerely believed that every yellow cab driver in Chicago was trying to kill him as a part of a yellow cab conspiracy. He might not have been wrong. It's very possible. I think anybody who got one of those yellow cabs was taking their life in their hands. Also, there's a lot of bugs in these foods. We talked about it before. A lot of bugs out there. Bug parts. He did actually kill a yellow cab driver, but he was found not guilty of that one. Uh, Not guilty. Yeah, Yeah, he got out of that one. But, you know, it's interesting. Again, that's all gang stalking activity. Isn't that interesting that that it's the same shit? It's like the same style Mm -hmm. of, of, of breakdown. Mm-hmm. It's also sort of the plot to Maniac, the OG Maniac, where all of the victims come back to haunt him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But even though Geary was originally found guilty of killing the gangland member and sentenced to hang, a second trial was held in which a jury determined Geary insane. Oh. And he was therefore spared the hangman's rope. Yeah, I am insane. I'm in the middle of being incredibly sane. <laughs> wow. Isn't that something? Put extremely simply, without getting into a lot of legal maneuvering on both sides, Darrow basically used the Geary case as a precedent that mental illness could be used as a mitigating factor in determining punishment. Or at least he used it as a part of his entire argument. It was a lot that went into it. I don't fucking understand all those lawyer shits. I mean, I, but it's basically how I get it. But, that, but that's, that's the basic idea. From way lawyers have what they have said to me, what I saw Cena do is that you memorize cases so that you could use those examples as precedent in the court. And then everybody weighs them against each other. And then some man that somehow got that job with the big robe on, he decides. And that's scary. And sometimes that guy doesn't even have a law degree. Sometimes he's just someone that got elected. He's just a guy. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Sometimes they don't wear pants sometimes. Every single time I'm like, everyone's like, oh, judges need to be respected. Then last night I saw Andrew Zimmern on the new Iron Chef. And I was like, oh, I think that all credibility can be gone now as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's a that's a judge for a TV cooking show. Is it not the same? <laughs> is it not the same? They're kind of that's the only place where justice can happen is in, in the some ways courts of Iron Chef. I do think the beat Bobby Flay is completely and utterly it's flawed. Yeah, it's yeah. staged. Yes. You think so? I, I think it's. So. I, I think there needs to be an open investigation to beat Bobby Flay, and I want to look at it. I want to from all sides. I want to talk to uh, Bobby Flay's family. He wins it. too much. Mm-hmm. Yes. So once the defense was able to get up and running with establishing the mental states of their clients, a psychiatrist testified that Richard Loeb was, in effect, infantile, somewhere between four and five years old emotionally. For example, Richard Loeb still talked to his teddy bear as if it was a person. See, this is interesting, is that he is he is a high society, but he, he's this guy. He's a snob. He's this college snob, fancier than everybody, but then he literally just goes like... Mr. Booberry, are you ready to go to sleep? He's like, me too, me too. Wasn't it hard to kill that child, Mr. Booberry? <laughs> no, it was actually really easy. Yeah, Aww. you're right. You're right. It was the perfect cry. It's like that movie Ted, but with like a serial killer twist. Yeah. Whoa, save that. <laughs> save that. Hold that idea. Well, furthermore, it was argued that Loeb was manipulated into a life of crime by his hard-nosed governess. And I'm not talking about the sexy German one. Mm-mm. Nathan had the sexy German governess. Yeah. From what the psychiatrist surmised, 
Richard's governess hounded him into submission by preventing socialization and placing academic demands on him that were so extreme that Richard had to lie in order to satisfy his cruel he, mistress. Oh, no, school what? was too hard. That's mm -hmm. why he killed the boy. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. And from there, Richard fell into a pattern of pathological lying, which led to his fantasy life as a master criminal who could elude his enemies forever through deceit and subterfuge. It was homework. Yeah. It was then said that Nathan Leopold, the other one, he had been a lonely and unhappy child who had been abandoned by his family to a sexually abusive governess whose overprotectedness towards an admittedly brilliant child, as much as Nathan Leopold was an asshole, he was fucking brilliant, all of that had resulted in brutal bullying. Yeah, and I mean, he didn't. If he did get his dick sucked by his nanny, like that's not like great. Um, but it still, can, seriously, I mean, he's gay. Remember, it's gonna fuck you up pretty hard. It's gonna fuck you up. So yeah. I feel like yeah, even if you're not it's gay, it's still gonna fuck you yeah, up pretty hard. You if, you, up. If, yeah, you're yeah, yeah. if you're twelve and a, a grown woman seduces you, it's it's not fun. It's not gonna help you. It's not gonna help your your standing in society. But still, you know, a lot of people get their dicks sucked by their teachers and shit, and they go on to be like <laughs> comedians and and like well, a lot I don't of really think it functional that people. Much. But I'm just saying, like a lot of people, like that. I think a lot of people end up getting. Yeah, I'm just saying, people who get molested actually don't often kill. No. No, of course not. But the psychiatrist maintained that this was how Nathan's ultimate fantasy was to be a slave who was also the strongest man in the world, both submissive towards his slave master and dominant over everyone else. You can't have your cake, you need two. Mm -hmm. You can't, you choose one. That's what mm -hmm. I said to him. <laughs> don't even get me going on that. I know. And when you put these two personalities together, psychiatrist argued you had the recipe for murder. Now, Richard needed Nathan's subservience to bolster his image as a master criminal, while Nathan needed Richard to play the role of the king who would come up with plans that put both of them in a superior position. Yeah, like, so it's kind of on you to make me be the slave to a really important guy. You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of on you got to be the important guy. Yeah. So I can be your fun little sex slave. Okay? Yeah. So you can be worthy of being my master. Yes. And I've yeah. actually said this to Natalie because I told her I want to be her erotic butler <laughs> and I would do things for her around the house and the nude. And I would do stuff. But then she said that that was for me and not for her. <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's like a gift, uh, gifting a bowling ball with your own name on it. Yeah, what yeah, they yeah, should, yes, really right. what they should do is give good, fun recipes to the jurors. Huh. What do you mean? Baked goods. Salisbury steak. For just what purpose? Just to butter them up a little bit. Oh, you're talking about bribing the jury. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, naked, yeah. naked bribery, but with very paltry gifts. Tampering with witnesses. Well, this was the era of gelatin. <laughs> oh, yes. So yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of gelatin. Recipes. Straight from the yeah. hoof. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, when the king faltered, when Richard faltered, Nathan the slave could pick up the slack and keep the plan going because his yep. ultimate purpose was to help the king achieve his goals. That's why the jester was allowed to say his criticisms of the king because he knew, oh, the jester didn't speak the truth, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the jester also gets killed like a bunch of times. Should. Yeah. yeah, a lot yeah. of times. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times the jester is the first to go. Yeah. 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 And of course, we're not saying that all this shit is true. We're not saying no. that all this shit even holds weight or that it's even worth anything. But what's interesting about all of this analysis of Leopold and Loeb is that the introduction of these ideas into the courtroom also introduced Freudian interpretations of psychology to the American public for the first time. But oh. that's why in terms of true crime history, 
This story is really, really important because you're seeing now as a template for the way these criminals would be approached in court from now on and how they would the the type of thing you'd go into, how a defense attorney would defend somebody who was obviously guilty of a crime. And, And we see it to this day. Yeah, specifically how a sociopath uh, or a serial killer, somebody like that, uh, is defended. I would hire a bunch of little mice to steal the judge's gavel. Again, New York, (laughs) if you said that, they'd be like, that's why you need Clarence Darrow. Because they'd be like, oh, obviously you're guilty of many crimes. If we're now to the point where you think you could control a mice army, we now need to get a more expensive lawyer in the courtroom for five, you. five yeah. mice, just yeah. five. <laughs> well, even outside of the true crime realm, Freudian psychology effectively entered mainstream American society through the Leopold and Loeb trial. And from what we can tell from the newspaper coverage of the day, the secondhand nature of hearing these ideas massively fucked up a good portion of the public. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's good, man. It's opening up that fucking box of thought, dude. Because these are not ready. They're not ready for They're not ready, no. Not at all. Because Freudian analysis back in the day was, like, hours long. Like, you sat, and it was for the very rich, like, for certain people, and the very sick. Like, the truly insane, right? Like, who would get these guys' attention. And it's kind of wild to think that, like, you're just for the first time hearing things like the Oedipal Complex, like, these types of things. You're, and you're like, does my son want to fuck me? Whoa. <laughs> yeah, people were not only suddenly questioning their own children. Like, people are wondering, like, am I creating a little Leopold and Loeb? Like, they're also seriously questioning what they themselves were capable of. Am I going to kill today? You know the times <laughs> I say that? And that's yeah. it, but I feel like what I know, what I, go, well, I think what's good is asking the question. Yeah. Because uh, it gets it out of the system. Pamela, Pamela, you're a great mom, but stop dressing so sexy in front of the kids. Well, in a newspaper cartoon published during the trial that had the oddly modern title of that awkward moment when we find we're all somewhat insane. Whoa, TikTok. Uh, A busload of Chicagoans reading newspaper coverage of the psychiatrist's testimony are shown with thought bubbles above their heads. And among other thoughts, they say things like these statements. That description fits me exactly. I must apply for admission to an asylum. Next one. Guess I guess I ought to have my bean surveyed. I used to think I was a brave knight saving the lovely princess. And most interestingly... Mercy! Are we all queer? I've always had fantasies. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fun bus. But actually, yeah, that is a fun bus. But it's the truth. This is like, it might be nice because then you can actually say like, you're not alone and you're not alone, bro. That is true. There is that side of it. But on the flip side of it, It seems, from what I can tell, that the Leopold and Loeb trial, it kind of introduced neuroticism to the world at large. Oh, no. (laughs) No, I mean, that doesn't mean that people weren't neurotic before 1924. Of course not. People have always been neurotic. But introducing this deep analysis of psychology in turn caused people to deeply and, more importantly, inexpertly analyze themselves, which in turn just created more neuroses that was passed on throughout the generations. They did their own research on their own insanity, Marcus. And I think that's really important that they made their own conclusions and found out for themselves, like we all must have. I am completely, unbridledly insane. Yeah. 
In addition, the Leopold and Loeb trial introduced the ideas of motivations and triggers to the general public, which changed the way that people thought about each other and why we do the things we do. That's arguably a good thing. Now, while it's definitely a stretch to say that the Leopold and Loeb trial, in effect, changed human consciousness in some very fundamental ways, it did introduce ideas previously kept to academia and philosophy to pop culture, which certainly counts for something. I think so. And I think that it... it uh, Again, it's all about getting away from the mechanist or the reductionist view of us, like the idea that we're just things you feed and walk and work and do these like again, like like little automatons, mm -hmm. that there is a very complicated uh, subconscious. Yeah. From your hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here with Henry Zabrowski. <laughs> Yeah, it's me, man. Yeah, bro. Henry Zabrowski is smoking some of that sweet last podcast of the left, babe. Go out there and purchase yourself some. I hope you enjoy it. We have sativa, we have indica, and we have a hybrid. And I have to tell you, from my personal experience, they are wonderful. Super tasty live resin. You really get the delicious weedy taste, which is what I like. And yes. three different experiences. You go to your local vape store and get it. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. We absolutely love you. Can't wait to see you on the road and get that vape, put it in your brain and have a good time. And if you want us at your favorite weed store, give them a call and ask for them by name. Absolutely. Last podcast on the left, it's weed. Hail yourselves, everyone. Hail Satan. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll, like sharing the right to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. 911, what's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Somebody Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're gonna make it out of here, we gotta work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at 11. She was hired to fix DC's 911 problems. It was the worst I'd ever seen. But instead says she was fired for exposing the failures. The blame belongs in leadership. Now the I-team digs into what fueled the mayor's decision. Tonight on 7 News at 5. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Now back to the case itself. After Darrow's psychiatrist said their piece, Robert Crowe came back with his own psychiatrist, who of course said the exact opposite of everything Darrow's psychiatrist claimed, and basically countered the defense's arguments with some very intelligent-sounding nah -uhs. No. Whoa. <laughs> say all that, yeah. Yeah, sure. Not. Not indeed. <laughs> 
But when it came time for closing statements, Clarence Darrow put on a show for the ages, or at least it was a show for the ages, depending on your point of view. Oh, yeah, because I sent you a clip of Clarence (laughs) Darrow talking for three minutes, which I loved it. I loved it personally. Uh, Yes, but I, I, oh, man, I was bad in school, dude. (laughs) I fell asleep. As soon as that lecture voice comes on, I go straight to dreamland. Well, it's the FDR voice. That's the, that he sounds a lot like FDR. And I can listen to FDR talk all day and all night. Over the course of three days. <laughs> all <laughs> right. I, I can. I it's can. all he does. He yeah. puts on those I old know. FDR speeches the in our side it. chats. Yeah, 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 he loves them. Mm-hmm. Well, over the course of three days, Darrow argued that had Nathan and Richard been from poor families, their guilty plea would have resulted in a life sentence without question or thought, especially since Leopold and Loeb were teenagers when the crime was committed. Did you ever see uh, the compulsion? With Orson Welles. I've never that, watched Compulsion. I've seen Rope a million times. I fucking love Rope. That's one Rope of my favorites. Rope is great. Rope yeah. is like the cooler version of Compulsion. Yeah. But Orson Welles as Clarence Darrow is pretty fantastic. Because again, he plays Clarence Darrow in a way which always seems like he's just like a, like a man who just missed the bus. He's just like, <laughs> yeah. And we'll take a look at the case again. Like, yeah. it, it just, he just is like, it's sad that it's been raining outside. His sandwich got wet. Oh, well, to give an example, Darrow stated that in the entire history of Chicago, only three out of the 90 people who pled guilty to murder were hanged. But because the Leopold and Loeb case was high profile, the prosecution was merely trying to make a splash with an execution, which had no bearing on actual justice. And strangely, Darrow then pivoted to a bit of a ramble, saying that the biggest factor contributing to the murder of Bobby Franks was Ben, can you guess it? Penis size. Interesting. <laughs> I'll give you three guesses. One, give me two more. Um, uh, number two would be uh, ball size. No, no you're just no, okay. Well, now you're just moving down. Right. Now you're just moving, moving down, the line. down the line here. <laughs> now, what would be the contributor? What would contribute to the murder of this child? Yeah, societally, uh, societally, societally. Yeah, Seinfeld. <laughs> Whoa, it's a show about nothing. Yeah. What are we, the, these what existential world we're trapped in? What mm-hmm. is it? World War One. Mm. Well, I never saw war footage and been like, better go kill a boy. Well, Darrow argued he actually made somewhat of a collective unconsciousness argument. He argued that the war, quote, has left its stains of blood upon every human heart and upon every human. Oh, that's beautiful Mm. stuff. It is. It really is. Yeah. And throwing two more bodies on the pile, he said, would do no good to anyone. I mean, I basically feel the same way after all of this time. Like, we're still going to let the government kill people. Yeah. You know, like after all of this time. Now, of course, Darrow's three-day-long closing arguments have been called everything from brilliant to a disorganized mess. Very little of his psychological or scientific testimony was mentioned, and Darrow used most of his time to rant against the death penalty. Yes, that's the thing. Is that all of this money was spent, and all of this time was was accrued, measuring their heads, <laughs> like looking up their assholes, like seriously, like doing right. full body runs, and then none of it came to. Then it came down to war. What is it good for? Like, that was the, all he said, which is good. I mean, he needed it, yeah. but it is interesting that you could, that was what guys like him could do back in the day, where yeah. they could just sit and talk about it. Like, and now we need to talk about why pogs are a face. Right. A long one, but indeed a face. 
Robert Crow, meanwhile, countered Darrow's argument by saying that the case was high profile because it involved a child. Then he spent much of the rest of his closing arguments talking about the victim's distended anus, Rough. which previously uh. had not been mentioned at all. And they were like, cut this closer. All right. I know it worked <laughs> right. in Cleveland, okay? But that was a specific night. Sometimes yeah. you got to let it go. Absolutely. Well, Crow took two days for his closing statement, and he vastly expanded upon Leopold and Loeb's relationship at the last minute, while also attempting to expose Clarence Darrow as a charismatic fraud. But while both of these men were fighting for their own versions of justice in the closing days, the judge in the case, John Caverly, found that being a part of such a highly publicized trial wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Oh, uh, I don't know. Oh. Ask, remember Judge Ito? He well, loved yeah, it. Yeah, Judge Ito did love it. The Dancing Itos. That's a bit of a myth. Judge Ito didn't. Uh, the only thing Judge Ito yes. loved was the Dancing Itos. He liked Seriously. the Dancing Itos. He liked well, the Dancing Itos, kind of but funny. all the rest of it he hated. It was a murder trial. Two people almost lost their heads. Yes. Um, yeah. But it was kind of funny the way that the Tonight Show was like, but, but what dance, if the judge dances? They were dancing. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the final days, Caverly's wife got a prank phone call from a man claiming to be a police captain who had news that her... This guy called him and said, Hey, your fucking your husband's been killed at the cemetery. You better go there right now. You better go there right now. Yeah. You better go. And then when she got there, she found her husband merely chatting with friends. And they had to deal with this shit for the entirety of the trial. Judge Caverly actually became such a figure himself, much like Lance Ito in the OJ trial, that it was reported that a patient at the Illinois Hospital for the Insane roamed the halls of the institution with a razor blade, demanding to speak to Caverly himself. Mm, that's well, not good. It's just the razor blade. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. That's we would the love problem. if you talk to him. You can write a letter. Letters are <laughs> you great. Know, like, that's fine. You can, e yeah. and you can even have your razor blade sit right next to you. Sure. You letter, you know? Sure. Leopold and Loeb, meanwhile, were taking none of it seriously. Throughout the trial, they'd been visited by old girlfriends, relatives, classmates, celebrities came by, six players from the fucking Chicago Cubs came and coached Nathan on his batting. Yeah, man. No, this what? is... They, well, it's because they dumped a bunch of money in. They have all of this money. So they, right. they got to immediately... They got to immediately experience a different criminal life yeah. than anybody else. And just the idea of having all the, the, the baseball players come and take a pictures and shit with him being like he killed a boy like, yeah, this is a make -a -wish. he pleaded yes. guilty to killing a boy killing a boy which is like it's again it's not like white collar crime like i yeah. could see like getting in with like a guy who did like tax evasion or some shit because that's kind of fun if he's like a fun guy you know if he's like a comedian yeah sure if he's you no 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 if he's some other guy some other funny yeah. guy <laughs> Well, at the same time, Nathan drew up a will, which mostly concerned his bird collection. Mm -hmm. Now, I got just the tiniest bit fascinated with Nathan Leopold's birds this week. <laughs> yes, you did this to me. <laughs> I just reading, uh, going through that, we were talking about this, and I literally, I went into a Nathan bird, Nathan's yeah. bird hole. Yeah, I love it. And I found a video made by a man who had the same question. What's up with the birds? Yeah. What's up with the birds? And you know yeah. what I like is, is that this shows how much you've grown. You've applied Kissel's point of view for one moment. Right. And you just were like, what about the birds? Yeah. What about the birds? What, what's up with them birds? What's the deal with the birds? I think you probably just like to clip their wings so they couldn't fly and he could hold them hostage forever. 
Now, this man did a little bit of digging and discovered that Nathan's collection was far larger than previously thought. Instead of dozens, Nathan reportedly had stuffed birds that he'd killed and either preserved or taxidermied himself, numbering in the hundreds. Some estimates said that he had 1,500 stuffed birds. That's just yeah. so much, and it's got to smell bad. And then well, it's like, what do you do with all those birds? You could see pictures of inside Nathan Leopold's house when they went to, like, the press came. When they were first questioned about the murder, uh, they came to his house and took these pictures. And to say that it looked chaotic <laughs> inside of that living room, I think is, is, is that's saying it lightly, a thousand <laughs> screaming Stuffed birds yeah. in her tiny room. It's a lot. Yeah, I do feel like you could still hear them screaming if you really pay attention. Well, that's the thing is that Nathan liked to taxidermy them as if they were screaming. He yeah. really loved to make it look like they were screaming. But the other thing is that not every bird was taxidermied because this was back in the day when these birds were mostly because you didn't have still photography that worked in the same way that still photography worked today. So if an or ornithologist wanted to study a bird, you had to look at a dead bird. So he oh. had these birds that he preserved. And so he just had drawers upon drawers upon drawers. He just opened it up. So many dead birds so in every drawer. Birds. So weird, man. They're just wow. laying there like little lumps. They're just yeah. like little chunks of burden. It's like, <laughs> but it's so weird. Like the idea of like, I love birds with all my heart. I spend all my days searching for them, hoping to see the, the barest glance of a bird. Oh, look, it's the speckled greckle. Oh, where, where, where? <laughs> like you have to break its neck and be like, ah, oh, beautiful bird. Yeah, now you get I get to, to have it. It. I get to play with its little dead body and lick its little dead bird asshole for the rest Weird. of the time. But that's the thing about it, is that even though Nathan did all these as a teenager, the specimens were pretty sharp looking. He knew what the fuck they were doing. And because these bird specimens were highly coveted by the ornithological community, the birds were donated to the Abaddon Society of Elgin, Illinois. Oh. And they made their way from there to the Elgin Public Museum of Natural History, where many are still on display today. However, none are marked as Nathan Leopold's because after the public got a little weird about a child murderer's birds being in their town, the right. museum purposefully lost track of which birds were Nathan's and which ones weren't, which basically told the public, fuck you. Now, if you want to get rid of Nathan's birds, you got to get rid of all the fucking birds. Okay, Whoa. okay, you want to got a problem with some of these fucking birds? Guess what? You see this canary? Throw it in the pile. Now I'm shaking it up. You wouldn't even fucking know if this was his bird. I got piles of these dead motherfuckers, all right? And they all look exactly the same. I got 15 of these owls. I got 15 of these robins. You don't fucking know the difference, do you? <laughs> but the most interesting part about this is that the museum curators did privately pass on information as to which birds did belong to Leopold's. And those birds, strangely enough, they were all taxidermied to appear in the most predatory poses mm -hmm. possible. They're all the ones going, ah! Whoa! <laughs> Now, on the day of the Leopold and Loeb verdict, it's estimated that 5,000 people showed up to the courthouse and the city was ready for whichever way the judge decided to rule because no one knew how anyone was going to react to either decision. 14 hours before it was to be announced, the sheriff gathered 70 motorcycle cops, 50 mounted cops, 100 foot cops, 
five squads of detectives and an unknown number of plainclothes cops to protect the attorneys and the judge, who'd all received threats that ranged from dismemberment to shooting to bombing to actual crucifixion. I'd also, I'd get some cops that have hands as well. I would. (laughs) 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 Crucify him! (laughs) Whoa! But at the end of it all, When the judge finally came to a decision, none of the psychological or scientific evidence had any bearing. But nor did the physical evidence, the eyewitness statements, or the premeditation of the murder. In the end, the judge ruled that for the kidnapping and murder of Bobby Franks, Nathan Leopold, and Richard Loeb were to be sentenced to life in prison. Clarence Darrow pulled it down. Simply because they were too young to hang. Yeah, man. Whoa, they they already knew that. They knew that the whole time. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Didn't even need any of that. Didn't need any of that. He didn't hear a word Clarence Darrow said. (laughs) Didn't hear a word Clarence Darrow said. Didn't hear a word the defense, the prosecution said. In the end, he just came up. Well, I mean, Clarence Darrow did mention like, hey, yeah, they're pretty young. But in the end, it really was just the judge deciding all on his own. This is what I think. Yep. So so I'm going to do that. That's what the judge does, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, following the verdict, Leopold and Loeb treated it as seriously as anything else. They showed no remorse and asked the sheriff to go out and get them steaks smothered in onions with chocolate eclairs for dessert because it was likely to be their last good meal for a while. Smothered in onions. What is with everything being covered in a lot of onions then? I adore steak smothered in onions. I do too. It's Don't get me wrong. Oh, I, I also love liver and onions. I yeah. love liver and onions. Yeah, oh, but, but it is weird that that was such a thing because that's old school. That's how my, yeah. my dad used to cook. Yeah. Not now. Yeah. Robert Crow, meanwhile, couldn't believe the verdict and decried the fact that these men of, quote, Loose and immoral character, i.e. homosexuals, these atheists, these Nietzscheans, exactly. would not be killed for their crimes. Exactly. Interestingly, while Judge Caverly said that he believed life in prison was a fate worse than death, his decision actually made it far harder to execute people in Illinois, which was inadvertently a victory for Clarence Darrow and his anti-death penalty campaign. You'll take it, man. A W's a W. Yep. Similarly, the psychological community claimed victory as well, even though their testimonies and analysis had absolutely nothing to do with the eventual outcome of the verdict. But that's the thing. You just you just claim victory. You just claim victory and you just say, hey, at least we got that free lunch. Yep. Yeah. Um, it was kind of nice to meet that baseball team. Mm-hmm. Right? So cool. Yeah. And now people are thinking about their buttholes more than they ever Way, have before. That's Way great. more. Mm-hmm. That's great. Now, after the Leopold and Loeb case, Robert Crowe's career stagnated, then took a downward dive. The murder rate doubled oh. every year that he was state's attorney while convictions declined. And that was despite a budget that kept pace with the former. Finally, one of Crow's staff, a man named William McSwiggan, was killed in a gangland shootout while congregating with known gang members at a speakeasy, which effectively killed Crow's career as well. Yeah, because they were all on the same team. Yeah. Right. Everybody was on the same team in Chicago. Yeah. And, the, and and Crow couldn't explain why McSwiggan was at the bar. And so the public lost, finally lost faith in him. Yes. His last name is McSwiggan. 
Yeah. I mean, where else if is he going to be? Yeah, exactly. If he's not drinking, technically, it's like one of those being named like Baker or Cook, right. where it's mm-hmm. like, that's what you did forever, right? Like, that's what your ancient ancestors did. Where like mm-hmm. McSwiggan, that is a alcoholic since the year 9000 BC. That's what my that's what my last name is Kissel. Come here. Oh, 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 I don't no, want. No, oh, no. I really don't like that. Get some sick kisses. Yeah, does, oh, please oh. leave us alone. Oh. How does Zabrowski? I'm I'm terrible at parallel parking. What does Zabrowski do? What is what Zabrowski is, actually comes from a uh, they do. This is true. Is that my uh, there's a zebra on my uh, crest, family crest, my family crest, and they think that it might have do with some kind of Duke version of me owning exotic animals. Interesting. Well, that's that's not. Uh, it's interesting that you place yourself think, in a dukedom. Your ancestors so. are dukes. That's, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, were certainly you, royalty. Were you, I mean, cle- were you fucking Cleopatra in a past um, life? I have the. Uh, you know that I have the body of a leader. So you don't think this doesn't run <laughs> in my DNA? True. And yeah, you don't think true. there's nothing more Polish than bringing an African creature to Poland to try to live <laughs> and see how it does in the fucking stone rock fields of Garskarsh? Oh, poor, poor zebra. Yeah, I do love parks, though. That's where that comes from. We were just park rangers way back just in like the day. And that's just like just parks. Parks. Just like, yeah, just being like outside. Just like being outside. Well, Nathan and Richard, meanwhile, after their conviction, they were both sent to the shambling mess that was Joliet Prison, where prisoners were still shitting in buckets and emptying them out daily in a large trough in the prison yard. Within five years, though, both men had been transferred to Statesville, where corruption was the order of the day. See, while Leopold and Loeb never joined one of the many prison gangs that operated whiskey stills, grew weed, and pimped out younger inmates, they gained influence and privilege with inmates and guards using one simple trick. Money. Oh, yeah, baby. Oh, wow. What a shock. Bernie Madoff, he lived in prison teaching men how to invest. (laughs) Yeah. Loeb had a permanent deposit of 500 bucks at the prison office, as well as 50 bucks a week from his parents. It's from my parents. And Leopold wasn't hurt neither, making the two of them a part of a small group of inmates who could buy whatever they wanted from the commissary whenever they felt like it. I'm actually really surprised they were allowed to hang out. With uh, other prisoners? No, with With themselves. themselves. Yeah, yeah. I and guess since, it was back in the day. They don't they didn't really care as much as we do now of like separating these types of people. No, they didn't give a shit at all. It's just throw a whole bunch of men into a stone fucking box and then just let them let them fight it out. Yeah. Yeah. And since Richard Loeb was prison rich and influential, he exchanged cigarettes, alcohol, large cells, and easy prison jobs for sex. Whoa. Conversely, oh. he could also prevent inmates from obtaining these privileges. And that was the sketchy business that led to Richard Loeb's downfall. Yeah, man, you don't really, I feel like in prison, you don't want to be a gatekeeper. You need to be like kind of open. You need to be kind of like, man, things are groovy here. You know, just to like try to keep yourself from being murdered. Yeah, that's the word that gets used in prison still groovy. to this day. It's groovy. Get being yeah. groovy. Being with yeah. it. Yeah. That's hear, me, man. Yeah. I, I hear the Colorado Supermax is like far out. No, man. Fucking just live in that jive life, man. There's a pretty good amount of acid you can get in prison, though. So you can just sit there and then you can yeah, like sulfuric, fantasize. Hydroponic. There's so much stuff you can get. <laughs> yeah. In. Well, in 1935, an inmate named James Day entered Statesville on a one to ten year sentence for armed robbery. Soon, he and Richard started a sexual relationship, although Day wasn't really into it. You think I'm that into it? Yeah. But by continually giving privileges, then threatening to take them away, Loeb manipulated Day into carrying on. 
This, as it turned out, was an extraordinarily bad idea. Mm. On January 26, 1936, Day obtained a razor from another inmate and told Loeb that he'd be taking a shower at noon that day, then casually suggested, wink, wink, you might want to meet me there. Because that's where Boner Town is. Oh, Boner Town. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? That's where you and I are going to have yeah. some sex. Sex with each other. Okay, cool. Huh? Well, Loeb showed up first and got naked. But when Day entered afterward, the razor was produced and Day used it to slice open Richard Loeb's neck. Whoa. And Day kept slicing until he'd inflicted 64 wounds Ooh. all over Richard's Ooh. body. Loeb died later that day, but possibly because nobody was all that sad about his death, Day was found not guilty. Of Richard Loeb's murder. They let him do the job of the state. Okay. Nathan, meanwhile, did a much better job at keeping his head down. After Richard's death, Nathan focused on managing the prison school that he and Richard had founded together. And he ended up teaching over 400 inmates before the end of it. He also did whatever he could to earn his release, including participating in the sort of drug testing that the United States government would use years later in the psychedelic realm with MK Ultra, and that's how fucking Leopold Loeb touches MK Ultra. <laughs> it's so fucking man. This show, dude. This show. We've been doing this for so long, and so many things just keep coming full circle. Yeah. Groovy. But back in the 40s, though, they were still using prisoners to test for things like malaria. And Leopold, much to the detriment of his health, allowed himself to be infected in the hopes that it would help with his upcoming parole here. Take fucking oh. anything. I'll still take it. Fucking give it to me, man. No. Give me the medicine, man. Mm-hmm. But when that hearing came in 1953, Nathan seemed contrite but unaffected, joking that if he got out of prison, he might sell neckties, he might work at a soda fountain. I don't, I don't know, know what I'm going to do, bro. I don't, know, I, don't know, yeah. I don't fucking know. Bro. Yeah. Maybe not neckties. Maybe that <laughs> yeah, wasn't yeah, the right profession, neckties. you know, because kid was kind of strangled and stuff. Yeah. In other words, he showed no real remorse and his parole was denied. But after learning his lesson, he got it right five years later and was actually released from prison in 1958, looking and sounding like nothing more than a harmless accountant that you don't like very much. He was wow. fairly whittled down. By the time he got out, he was old, too. Was so how old. long was he in there for? 30 years? Uh, He was in there for 28, something like okay. that. I can't exactly. I mean, I'm sure I did the math wrong. But yeah, from 1925 to 1958. Yeah. yeah 23. I think that's 28. 23. That's fine. It's fine. 23. <laughs> You're close. <laughs> I've gone close. Yeah. Yeah, 25. Yeah. But after he spent only a few days in Chicago being hounded by the press, Nathan Leopold picked up his life and moved to beautiful San Juan, Puerto Rico. I mean, that's where I fucking go, dude. Yeah, Yeah. man. San Juan's fucking love San Juan. Oh, yeah. There, Leopold met a widow from Baltimore named Trudy, which is a very Baltimore name. This is just such a... (laughs) A scene. I can see this scene. Such a Baltimore story. You move to Puerto Rico and you marry Nathan Leopold. Yeah, I, uh, I, I mean, I'm from Baltimore. Yeah, I married <laughs> Nathan because he's a, you know, he's a real, he's a better than a, a lot of the other guys from Baltimore. 
Well, that was in 1961. And using at least he a- was convicted of his murder. <laughs> a lot of the guys I talked to, they had only get off or they got off. They weren't even picked up by the police. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, using Nathan's modest inheritance, Trudy opened a flower shop in San Juan, and the two of them spent the rest of their lives traveling the world and occasionally returning to Chicago to visit family. Yep. Finally, though, in 1971. Nathan Leopold died of a heart attack. And while we'd all love to take a trip to San Juan to see the grave, yeah, his body was donated to the University of Puerto Rico. And there was no funeral service held for one of the most infamous murderers of the 20th century. Was that just to to check on his asshole glands? Like, and now we have the preserved moron. (laughs) They could have stopped him like one of those birds. They could have. He would have loved it, I bet. He yeah. would have loved it. Uh, awesome. Wow. One, one of the biggest Lowe. stories in true crime, man. Finally, we finally got to it, dude. Yeah, we did it. And we'll be, well, I mean, we'll eventually get to Black Dahlia. I know that's one of the others that uh, that we've got on the docket. Um, eventually, we'll get to it. Oh, you'll we'll get up year. in there. Next year. Um, but, well, again, I just want to say thank you to everybody who came out to Nashville. Oh, uh, it was such it was a so cool fun. fucking time, and it was so good to be together. Um and thanks to everybody who watched online, too. It was, that yes. was, it was really oh, sweet yes. for so many of y'all to come out and watch us. You can go to momenthouse.com slash LPOTL uh, to check that out. Still, I think we have a couple more days where it's available. Oh, and, uh, yes. Yeah. And just so you know, we can now announce you. If you've liked the last comic book on the left, which we are very proud of the work that went into it, we have volume two. Uh, is officially we're announcing it. It is coming out. Uh, it is uh, going to come out the in the winter time. But you can do a pre-order at z2comics.com/lpotl2. That's the number two. That's the number two. Yeah, and uh, yeah, for those of you comic book nerds out there, uh, we got David Mack did the fucking cover. Like it's that's insane. I, don't, I know insane. it doesn't mean a whole lot, but yeah, David Mack did the fucking that's cover awesome. for this. And, yeah, drew all three of us. He drew Ben quite angelic. He really oh, did. Very and we nice. also have one of my new favorite uh, creators ever was Rick Veitch, who I'd never and did not know him before. Oh, and my like, God. Now I love him. I read also we got him on the book with yeah. Tom Neely and I collaborated on a project. I can't wait for you guys to see this fucking this book. Marcus is writing something. We got a lot of shit in the new anthology and we really can't wait for you to read it. And also we got a couple more days left. If you had if you didn't see the Nashville show and you want to watch it, you want to rent it. Go to momenthouse.com slash LPOTL and you can rent it. I believe it's for $10. And man, you can experience it at the same time. I want to watch it again. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it just because it went by in such a blur. I don't know what I remember. Wild times all around. All right, everyone. Thank you all so much for listening. Hail yourselves. Hail Satan. Ogin. Magustalations, everyone. Hail me, my pink little feet. Yeah, and oh. all your glands. And one other thing, the entire replacement series on uh, No Docs in Space is now available. Yes. Wherever you listen to your podcast. But yeah, yes. go listen to your uh, full replacement series. It's five parts or 4.5 because Carolina refused to do five parts or call it five parts. And it was a bit arbitrary. But hey, what are you going to do? We well, remember when we did the, do you remember when we did? It was like 400. It was like 399.5. We did. Yeah. Same principle. So, that sounds, yeah. That hypocrite. That's what I am. I'm a hypocrite. You, yeah. are. you are. But guess what? Yeah. Next week, we're getting to something real stupid. Yeah. I'm real excited for you. We'll talk to you soon. (laughs) This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.
Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. <laughs> 